Let's turn to 1 Timothy. We're still there. We're still in that book, 1 Timothy. And we're in chapter 5. And we're going to look, beginning with verse 3, and I'm going to bring us down to verse 16. But what we're, what we're seeing here uh, is... is Instructions to the church. So if we remember again, the Apostle Paul has written this letter to Timothy, who's a pastor of Ephesus, to the rest of the Ephesian elders at Ephesus regarding how a church should function. Uh, He's uh, charging Timothy and the elders to rebuke false teaching. He's regulating the public worship of God. And what we're going to see this morning uh, is uh, is some intentionality about caring for what the Scripture calls the least of these. And really, if we, if we threw this under a banner, right, to care for the least of these, and this morning we're going to specifically talk about widow care, is, is so like, it's so like Jesus to be concerned about this. Right? And, and, and so as I studied this passage of Scripture... Six months ago, no, really, just a few weeks ago when I was supposed to originally preach it, but when I was studying it and as I've thought about it longer, I thought, man, this is a a clear picture, really, of what Christ did in his first advent, right? This this serving, this washing, if you will, of of the disciples' feet. We're going to even kind of, that's going to be what our devotion is. For the Lord's Supper in just a few moments centers around, but, but no one went unnoticed by Christ, right? Christ was the one who met with the woman at the well and through a conversation changed the entire trajectory of her life, right? Christ pays attention. And so we want to, by God's grace, as Christians, as ambassadors for Christ, as people that are looking to continue this shepherding ministry in His stead until He returns in a second advent, when He makes all things new, right, we want to model our Savior. We want to be like Christ. And so that really, if I gave this an overarching banner this morning that, that this text would fall under, it would be that. And so let, let's kind of hold that in our minds as we approach the text this morning. The Apostle Paul, again, writing to Timothy, he starts, he says this under the inspiration of the Spirit, starting in verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things. We've seen that word command earlier in First Timothy, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, 
Let a widow be enrolled. Okay, there's this program here. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, that is, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, And give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you, God, that in a book written about significant ecclesiastical things, things pertaining to the church, Lord, that there would be a section in here about widows. And so, God, help us by your Spirit to be convicted and challenged. Help us to see this as an extension of the ministry of Christ Jesus, Lord. And we give you all praise, all honor, all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And if we're to care about the vulnerable among us, if we're to care about the least of these this morning, which certainly as Christians should be all of us, right? We, we want to pay close attention to a text like this, right? The, these words aren't just written to the church of Ephesus. These words are written to us, right? These words aren't written, if you notice, to a political party, right? They're not instructions here for welfare. God in His Scripture is speaking to us, and as I, I hope we see this morning, we can't forsake a duty as important as this. And and this morning we see Paul specifically addressing two different groups here, two sovereign groups. And when we come across something like this in Scripture, I try to make sure that I point it out to you because I think it has significant ramifications for how we live our lives. But in Scripture, we see three different spheres of authority, if you will, all three spheres ordained by God. And we've, again, discussed these before. The first sphere we see is the home, which is, which is the foundational authority. That The home existed before the other two spheres ever came into existence, right? The other two spheres came into existence after the fall of man. But the home, man and wife, charged to bear children, to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the earth, that came before the fall. Those are instructions before the fall. The home was instituted before the other two spheres. The second sphere that we see in Scripture is the civil sphere, which is the government, right? We've seen together that, that go, those in government are to be deacons, servants, if you will, of, of God's law. That means that they're to govern according to God's Word, and God's Word limits their authority to punishing evildoers, right? Evil being defined as well by God's Word. That's the sphere of, the, of, of, of authority 
for the civil government. And then the third sphere that we see in Scripture, sovereign sphere, is the church, right? It's the church, the church uh, consisting of, of elders and of deacons and of all those that have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have the home instituted before the fall. We have the civil sphere, which is the government, which are to be deacons and ministers of God's law, God's law in the sense that they punish the evildoer. And we have the church as well. And all three spheres, generally speaking, should stay within their jurisdictional lane. And, and, and yes, there's overlap sometimes. For instance, if a, if a father breaks the law, right, he, he must be punished by the civil government. And if that father is a member of the church, the elder should speak into what's going on in his heart and in his mind. And if that father's break, breaking of, breaks the law, it probably will have a ripple effect on the family, right? There, there's overlaps at times, but these three spheres are all responsible before God to recognize their jurisdictional boundaries. And we kind of see Paul getting at that with two spheres of authority, really, if uh, implicitly all three spheres. Right? But we live in a society, and it's a society un- not unlike Ephesus, where that's not happening, Right where we're continuing to intrude on one another's lanes. And we even see Paul here give, give these jurisdictional instructions so that the, the church doesn't swallow up the home, okay, and, and the home's responsibilities, right? And we, he wants to see that the home doesn't forsake its responsibilities so that the church can be freed up to care for what Paul calls true widows. And the reason this is important, and the reason why we need to even notice kind of the, the jurisdictional boundaries, if you will, and the sovereign spheres that God have, has established in his world, is because of sin. All right, we need to pay attention because of sin and how sin has distorted this and has has in, in a lot of ways destroyed jurisdictional boundaries. Right? The, the home has disintegrated in, in many cases, and, and domestic responsibilities have been forsaken and in our culture even despised at times. Right? The church has often, whether intentionally or unintentionally, neglected those that are vulnerable around us. Right? The government has expanded in an effort to control all, all three spheres and, and, and to seize an opportunity to fill the vacuum, if you will, left by the first two spheres, the home and the church. And the way out for us this morning, the way out for us is to flee to Christ. Right? That, that's the way out. The way out for us on this issue is repentance. Right? And, and repentance begins, and I've said this before, but repentance begins in the household of God, right? It begins in the household of God. This letter is written to the church. So first, and, 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 and I'll give kind of the way out even right up front for us, and then we'll go on to tease out more of what the text says, but Christians need to take responsibility for those in their family, Right? If you're a Christian this morning, you need to take responsibility for those in your family, even at great financial cost. Right? To bring it even more to bear on our text this morning, children 
And if need be, grandchildren are specifically mentioned in our text, but they have a responsibility to care for their aging parents. Specifically, the text is mentioning widows, right? And we can't, we can't disregard that responsibility. We can't forsake that responsibility. In fact, Christian, Christian children and grandchildren should have a desire driven by a love of God to care for their vulnerable mother. Secondly, the church has a responsibility to care for what the text calls true widows, and, and we'll define what it means to be a true widow in just a moment. And, and we as a church collectively have to be quick to repent of the ways in which we overlook them or not noticing them or not knowing the need. We see back If you're familiar with the book of Acts and the spread of the early church, we see back in Acts chapter 6 a glimpse of what seems to be deacons being installed. And they were installed, these deacons were installed initially to take care of a a problem, okay? And, and, And that problem was that the widows were being unintentionally neglected in the daily distribution of food, of, of material goods. They weren't being noticed, if you will. And so the, the apostles respond in kind by installing, uh, beginning this sort of benevolence program, and I'm going to define that word in a minute, and, and, and sought to remedy that and sought to, to make sure that, that the widows in the church weren't overlooked. Now, how do we know that we're missing the mark on this issue? How do we know that we're missing the mark on this issue? There are a few questions that we can ask to to help us gain perspective. And these were just some questions that came to my mind as, as I worked through the message. But how do we view, this is one question, how do we view the role of government in society? Is, is it to, from our view, is it to expand to the home? Do we view government that way? Right, do we see government as a way in which to forsake our own personal responsibility? Right. Where is our time and money going? Right. Are you supporting the benevolence needs of your family and of those in this church? Right. The, the Lord and His Word is very clear to us, and really this sermon could be summed up in a passage we find elsewhere, James chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Verses 26 and 27. Perhaps your mind has already gone there uh, as, as I read the, the First Timothy 5 passage. It says, if anyone thinks, James says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, Right? And this is the part where we lean in. What is pure and undefiled religion? What is he going to say here? He says this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure and undefiled religion. To keep, uh, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right? Our tongues, right? And we're all guilty of this in some shape, form, or fashion, but our tongues may be quick to speak about injustice, right? To speak about or speak for those who are vulnerable, but if it stops there, our religion's worthless. If it stops there, our religion's worthless. In fact, we're hypocrites in that, if that's the case, we pretend that we care publicly 
which is a very easy thing to do to pretend that you care publicly about something, right? But we don't do the costly, unseen, nitty-gritty work behind the scenes to meet the need. So if we're not engaged in caring for those who are our responsibility in our homes and in our church, our religion according to James, is ineffectual. It's unproductive. Practically speaking, it's godless. And we'll see more of why that is. By God's grace, hopefully that'll come into a clearer picture as we move along this morning. But let's get more into our text. And as we do, think concretely. Think of those God has entrusted to your care, right? Think of those that God may one day entrust to your care, if that's not the stage of life that you're in presently. And, and, and as we do, there's a, there's a word at the heart of this sermon this morning, and I've mentioned it once already, and that word is benevolence. Benevolence. And Merriam-Webster defines benevolence as the disposition to do good. Okay, the disposition to do good. From a Christian perspective, I would perhaps define it this way. Tangible, God-glorifying do-gooding. Right? Tangible, God-glorifying do-gooding is the way that I would perhaps define benevolence. And, and, and by doing good, I, I have in mind three things primarily as, as we seek to, to be a church that cares, as we seek to cultivate homes that care. I, I think of do-gooding in this way. First is this, promoting the eternal well-being of the vulnerable by remembering that you're serving Christ and you, you serve them well by actually pointing them to Christ. So we want to serve their eternal well-being as, as a priority because they are eternal beings. They're not just created as, with body, they're created with a soul, right? And we want to be for their eternal good. And so we want to care for them in such a way that it points them to Christ. Secondly, do-gooding is putting financial resources toward meeting needs if necessary, Right? Putting financial resources toward meeting needs if that's necessary. And then third, investing your time into an individual knowing this, that they're created in the image of God. Right? So we want to be for their eternal well-being, pointing them to Christ, knowing that we're laboring from a place in which God and Christ has paid attention to us. We want to be uh, a people that will invest financial resources if that is the need of the moment. And then third, we want to invest our time in that individual, no matter how difficult, knowing that that individual is a precious soul created in the image of God, okay? Benevolence, that's benevolence, all right? So that's our framework, but let's jump into our text. And Shandy, you can put that first one back up, but we must take God in, and the home is being addressed here first, all right? So if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. We must take God seriously by taking benevolence needs seriously in the home, in your home. All right? Verse 3 and 4, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. He's saying, church, get out of the way here. Get out of the way and let them show their own household godliness and let them make some return to their parents, right? This is pleasing in the sight of God. There's a sense here in which Paul is giving a caution, a warning to the church, right? The, the church could, perhaps from this place of seeing this need and wanting to pounce on it, they could, they could venture outside of their jurisdictional lane and they could prevent 
a household, children, grandchildren from being obedient to their calling from the Lord. Right? The church is not to usurp the sovereign sphere of the home, nor is the government to do that in the caring of widows. Children, and if they're not around, grandchildren have primary responsibility to care for their widows. And what's implied here is certainly we have moms in mind, but we shouldn't conclude that dads would be off topic. But this is in a very tangible way. When we read something like the fifth commandment, honor thy mother and thy father, and we're like, what's that all about? This is, could be one of the applications of the fifth commandment, honor thy mother and father. And what's interesting to me here and, and convicting to me personally is that Paul doesn't give any qualifiers here. Right? He's not worried about qualifying this, care for them if. Right? He, he doesn't say care for them if they're care worthy. He doesn't say care for them if you have a good relationship with them. He says, show godliness to your own household. And that word godliness here in this text, it means the whole of practical piety. It, it supposes knowledge and veneration and affection, independence and submission gratitude, obedience, all, all, that's what that word godliness here, this, this whole of practical piety, that's, what, that's what's in view here. Right? The, the way that you care for your aging or debilitating family members demonstrates the genuineness of your godliness. Right? It demonstrates the, the genuineness of your godliness. It shows, if you want to know the orientation of your heart, look there, it shows the orientation of of your heart. It shows who or what you really worship. Right? Paul says, by caring, you make some return to your parents. You make some return to your parents. Right? There was this expectation, and this, this was certainly the case in the first century, this was certainly the case in the ancient Near East culture. When you read in the Old Testament, the parents were going to, the, the children and the grandchildren were going to take care of the aging parents. But Paul says, by caring, you make some return to your parents. And while many of us may have turbulent, difficult relationships with our parents, one thing that we can thank God for is that they brought us into this world. Right? Now look at verses 7 and 8 here. It says, command these things as well, so that you may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and this is strong language here, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's startling. That's startling when you think about it, isn't it? All right, we looked at Paul's charge to Timothy several weeks ago, command and teach. Right, and what Paul's saying here about widow care has the force of a command. Right? It has the force of a command. This is, thus saith the Lord, is what Tim, uh, Paul is getting at here. Right? Provision for one's relatives, especially the household, is a serious matter. And in Timothy's charging households with caring for widows, he's sanctifying them. If we neglect our widows, particularly our mothers, we do not live above reproach. We do not live above reproach. We aren't without reproach. We're reproach worthy. 
Right? To not provide for our relatives is equated here with denying the faith. And Paul says that you're worse than an unbeliever. And this is a serious matter. Benevolence matters. Benevolence matters. Right? So, so what, what's behind this? Why such a stark, stern rebuke? And I found the answer really best answered by one particular commentator. And he says this. He says, if in any case a duty of love is plain. Okay, if in any case a duty of love is plain, it should be in relation to one's own relatives. To fail in so plain an obligation is a plain proof that you don't have love. It's also a plain proof that you want in faith. Faith does not set aside natural duties, but strengthens natural duties. Right? So our faith in Christ should strengthen that which should come natural. That which should come natural is that we would care for those in our household. Right? Christians of all people should have strength in love because their love has been set ablaze and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Right? Christians of all people should have strength and love despite difficult earthly relationships because we were enemies of God, yet Christ died for us while we were still enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 tells us as much. And James, who calls us to care for widows and orphans, says plainly in James chapter 2 verses 14 to 19, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking In daily food, and one of them says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. And so as households, we must ask ourselves, the questions, is our faith driving our care? Or is our faith driving our care? Or are we caring for our widows? Now, if this isn't a present season of our lives, we must ask ourselves the question, are we preparing ourselves? Are we preparing ourselves both from a heart posture standpoint, but even at a financial level, if need be, to care for our parents? Right? Because we cannot, according to the Word of God, we cannot res- forsake our responsibilities. We can't forsake our responsibilities. Right? How can we be concerned about any other child of God if we're not concerned about God's children in our household? Right? Families must care for the members of their household. And I know that some of you this morning are actively doing that. You've been in my thoughts and my prayers a lot, especially these last few weeks. I've been blessed by your stories. I've been convicted by your faithfulness. I know that some of you have laid to rest your parents whom you've cared for in some way until the very end. And that may seem like an unseen job, right? Like a thankless task. But you're doing it before the face of Almighty God. What you're doing matters. What you're doing is seen. The God who created all things notices how well you're caring for your aging parents. And my encouragement to you is to, to keep your gaze 
on Christ Jesus. All right, what God says you have is pure and undefiled religion as you serve your frail family members before the face of God. So keep going on that path and be encouraged. Your testimony is encouraging to me. And secondly, if you're taking notes, we see Paul shift and he speaks to the church here collectively, the gathered assembly. Right, we must take God seriously by taking benevolence needs in the church seriously. Right, so as individual Christians, we need to take it seriously in our household. As God's church, we need to take it seriously as well. And we circle back to verses 5 and 6 with me. She who is truly a widow, there's that true widow, truly a widow, right, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she, she lives. And then drop back down to verses 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflict, and has devoted herself to every good work. And there's a program of sorts here. Uh, that, that the church must have. And, and this is a real strong case, by the way, for, for church membership. The church is to know who she's responsible for. And the people that we're responsible for are the members of this local assembly. Membership in, a, in the local church has at its roots widow care, right? Acts, again, Acts chapter 6, what I mentioned earlier this morning. But furthermore, the elders are told that they're to care for the sheep as people who will give an account. Members are told they're to submit to their leaders in the church. Hebrews chapter 13, 17. There's an understanding of who's who, who belongs where there, right? This all requires some form of membership. At Deer Park, we have benevolence for our members. And and, and, uh, true widows would qualify for that benevolence, right? And it's in our missions fund that is supported by members of this church who give financially to the church, right? Apart from uh, prayer and, and finances coming together, this sort of care would not be available to those that need it. Actually, none of what we would do would be possible without prayers and, and financial support of the members of this church. But here we have Paul telling Timothy that a widow who's a true widow is to be enrolled if she meets particular qualifications. And, and the qualifications go as follows. First is this, She must be a true widow, which means that she must be all alone with no children or grandchildren to care for her, right? We see that in verse 5. She must be all alone with no children or grandchildren to care for her. Secondly, she must be a godly woman, and she would be because she would be a member at that local church. We see this in verse 5 as well. Third, she's not to be a self-indulgent woman. In other words, she can't be a luxurious liver, if you will, a a pleasure pursuer. This kind of woman, uh, the kind of woman that that would be a pleasure pursuer is is the kind that that would squander away any form of of support that she would get and, and end up depriving real widows of the care that they need. But the Scripture says that that type of woman, that she's dead even though she lives. We see that in verse 6. There's an age requirement there, 60 years old and up in verse 9. And as a side note, it's interesting to me that things like Medicare or Social Security start when someone's over 60 years of age. It's fascinating to me. 
just an observation. Fifth, the wife of one husband. Right? I think that we can equate this to, to her being a, a one-man woman, right? a one-man woman. In other words, she's not a woman that's consumed by her lusts. She's not consumed by her lusts. She wasn't an adulterer. And then six, she must have a godly reputation. We see that in verse 10. And in other words, she must have been engaged in benevolent ministries. Right? She, mu- she must be someone who, who, who has these good works to shine, someone who cared for the least of these. Her reputation precedes her in her acts of service for God and His church. And, and these qualifications, they should teach us something that's extremely important. Right? There's no virtue in allowing your benevolence to be taken advantage of. Right? There's no virtue in allowing your benevolence to be taken advantage of. There's no virtue in the church squandering away the church finances that they're called to steward well. Right? Gullibility and generosity is a vice. Gullibility and generosity is a vice. Prudence is a virtue. Stewardship is virtuous. Enabling a pleasure pursuer in reality, is unloving because it does nothing to confront the path of, the, of destruction that that individual is on. It loses sight. It loses sight of the most significant thing about them, which is that they're an eternal being. Right? They're an eternal being, and we should care for their eternal well-being. Right? Our, our generosity, and this is critical because this is where uh, oftentimes churches and individual Christians can go off right? We want to be generous, and we want to help, and we want to love, and all of those things that are really good, but if we lose sight of the primary thing, of the first thing, of the foundational thing, we end up doing more harm than good. Our generosity should be driven by a love of God and a love of His gospel, right? Our generosity should be driven by a love of God and a love of His gospel, right? This is, this is what all of this that we're talking about this morning should be funneling and directing people toward. Should be directing and funneling people toward God and His gospel. Physical needs are important, but the meaning of physical needs should complement or harmonize the message of repent of sin and rest in the finished work of Jesus, right? That is a chief concern in our text this morning. Our physical provisions for others should be sending people toward Christ, not funding their fleeing of Him, right? Our our physical provisions for others should be sending people toward Christ, not funding their fleeing of Him. That's not benevolence. That's not benevolence. Look at verses 11 through 15 again. But refuse to enroll younger widows. Here we go. Refuse. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary, right, who's the devil, no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan." Right, there were those in the church of Ephesus that were seeking to take advantage of the benevolence ministry who were running away from Christ. They were deceived by sin and they were fleeing Christ. And to not discriminate in the distribution of benevolence care is not only bad stewardship before God, but it's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's spiritually and can be physically harmful 
to widows who are not qualified, right? And certainly we could expand that to any sort of uh, relationship that, that may need physical provision. All right, but there were younger widows here in Ephesus that were controlled by their passions. They had no self-control, and their passions were drawing them away from Christ Jesus. And to fund them or encourage them in any way, even indirectly, could further cement the hardness of heart already being cultivated in their lives. And this is why we need biblical parameters for something as seemingly straightforward as a benevolence ministry. We don't want to even unwittingly support that which causes spiritual harm in the life of a member of this church. Right? We don't want to fund, so far as it depends on us, any type of lifestyle that's contrary to God and His gospel. We want to be steadfast in our care of souls, first and foremost, right? because all people created, again, are eternal beings. Right? They will live forever, forever, either in the joy of the Lord right? or in God's fierce wrath and hell. And may we do nothing to contribute or to pat someone on their back as they head straight toward an eternity in hell. So what of younger widows? Because this is interesting to me as Paul closes this down. The logic in our text goes this way. It goes this way. Just as our benevolent support of a godly qualified widow drives them further to experience Christ's love, so our withholding of physical care for clear, understandable reasons to wayward widows should drive them in desperation back to Christ, like a prodigal. And yes, that's a run-on sentence. But I'll say it again. Just as our benevolent support of a godly, qualified widow drives them further okay, to experience Christ's love, so our withholding of physical care for clear, understandable reasons to wayward widows should drive them in desperation back to Christ like a prodigal, okay? In Paul's instructions, his instructions to Timothy is to tell these women who burn with passion to put on Christ. They're to put on Christ. They're to remember who they are in Christ Jesus. And he does so in a very earthy, street-level sort of way. Okay, he says, instead of being idlers, which is lazy and thoughtless, instead of being gossips, which implies in it even a chattiness, instead of being busybodies, which literally means meddlesome or nosy or prying, they're to marry, bear children, and manage their households, which keeps a person quite busy, right? Now, Paul says this will eliminate, this is the logic of Paul, he says this will eliminate the opportunities for the adversary, who's the devil, to, to, to slander them, to further lead them astray, to keep them on the road that they're going on. And, and this may seem strange to us. That may seem like shocking instructions to us, right, here in the 21st century and, and the ways that we've been impacted uh, to even despise the... the God's instructions for men and for women, but we have to remember that this is God's world. This is God's world. He's designed it. He knows uh, how it is to function, and we have his word telling us that for young widows burning with a desire to marry, they should marry, and they should have children, and they should be the executives 
of their home. Right? This is the remedy, according to Paul, according to Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God. This is the remedy to idleness. This is the remedy to gossip. This is the remedy of being a busybody. This is a remedy, ultimately, from being pushed further and further away from Christ Jesus. And this is the stuff that matters. This is the stuff that matters. Having children matters because populating God's kingdom matters. Right? Having children matters because populating God's kingdom matters. Managing the home matters because teaching children how to live in God's kingdom matters. Tending to the home is eternally significant, and it's doing spiritual good even now. So this isn't as out of place as perhaps we would think. And Paul closes the section in verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. And then again, a warning to the church. Let not the church be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So families, care for the widows in your family so that the church may may care for those who are true widows, those who have no family. And all of this should be for us the outworking of hearts that have been captivated by the gospel of God. If we want to tangibly labor in such a way that promotes the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, if we want to tangibly labor in God's will, if we, if we want religion that's true and undefiled, we'll care for our widows. Right? Promoting God's kingdom here on earth is way less ethereal than we think it is. It's changing diapers, right? both of the old and of the young with our eyes fixed firmly on Christ Jesus. A few, a few takeaways for us. First is this, and this is in your bulletin. It's been in the past three or four bulletins that we've had to discard for the last several weeks. Our care and generosity toward our widows should spring from our gratitude to God for the care and generosity He has for us in Christ. Second, we must recognize that we own nothing. Right? We, we, we hold things so clench-fisted, right? But we own nothing. We're stewards of God's resources to promote God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, we use God's resources the way He tells us to in His Word. Third, if you don't have aging parents to take care of, a good way to cultivate a generous heart toward caring for them is by practicing hospitality now with those in our local church. Are you hospitable with the resources that God has given you? Because you don't just become hospitable, right? This is something that must be cultivated over time. Fourth, our hospitality should always direct others toward how our triune God has welcomed us into his family to care for us for all eternity. So with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this time in your word. Thank you, Lord, that that we are able to be here together, God, to worship you, pray that you're Unchanging Scripture would shape our thinking, would shape our hearts, and would help us to fall more and more in love with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.